Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Hello and welcome to another edition of St. Joseph Radio Presents, coming to you live from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I'm your host today. My name is Ray Gerard, and with me in studio, we have Sean Mueller. He is the Director of Religious Education at Immaculate Heart in New Melly. Sean, it is always, always a pleasure to do a program with you. So Good to be here. Welcome again. Um, so, Sean, would you perhaps care to lead us off with a, a prayer? Uh, let's start. We're going to be talking about um, more reasons for God, so let's um, invoke the Lord right now and and pray to Him, seeking for His uh, wisdom and light. In the name of the Father, um, and of the Son, and of the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, we pray in thanksgiving for Your life that You've given us. We pray in thanksgiving for this great Easter season, for the Lord coming to redeem us from our sins and give us hope. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon this conversation that we're having here in studio and upon all upon whom these uh, words will fall. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay. Reasons for God, you say? Yeah. So I've been in a series, Reasons for God. It's in a memory aid jumped. I always have said over the years, and we've listened to all these talks, but it's like, what's a takeaway? You know, so I always like memory aid. So I'm doing this memory aid jumped, J-U-M-P-E-D. And it's kind of a play on, I remember as a kid, I always loved watching the show, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. There's a great closing scene where he has to make this, quote, leap of faith. And so I thought, well, leap of faith jumped. It's kind of a parallel there terms there. So, you know, we, we talked about Jay, Jesus, the Jews. We talked about the universe, the universal church. We talked about miracles, the moral law. So today we're on P, which is we're going to be talking about Pascal's wager okay. and the human predicament. And as well as, if we have time, we'll get into prophecies. Pascal wrote these um, notes where he gives gives his famous wager, but then he also says that uh, we can know some of who God is through miracles and through prophecy. So hopefully these reasons will help encourage people to make um, the, quote, leap of faith. People sometimes think that faith is this blind leap. It's like, no, to make a blind leap is dumb. I mean, you know, there, there's a part of faith that is risk and trust, right, in anything. But, you know, we have reasons for what we believe. You know, you think about that closing scene uh, in Indiana Jones, you know, like he was in a, in a predicament. The guy says, you have to hurry, Indy, because his father just got shot. He was dying. And then Indiana Jones had to make this leap of faith. But he, he made it out of trust. He had his father's diary there. But, um, you know, I, I like that scene because he was in a human predicament, you know, which we're all in this predicament we call life. We all are making choices every day. We're kind of betting every day on our worldview by how we live. You know, we're kind of in a culture of relativism and indifference and whatnot. But I'm going to be speaking about a human predicament first that Pascal says, all right, look at your situation in life and then look at what's going to come down the road, namely death. And then how are you going to live? How are you going to bet? How are you going to place your bet? So I, I want to start with a little story here about betting and making a wager as kind of a prelude into this talk. So uh, if you'll 
indulge me Please. for a second. So uh, one, one day a man uh, went to wager some money at the horse races. So while there, he noticed a priest who had stepped out on the track and blessed the forehead of one of the horses lining up for the race. <laughs> Lo and behold, that horse, a very long shot, won. <laughs> the man thought he'd keep his eyes open for the next race, and sure enough, out walks the priest onto the track as the racehorse is lined up. Priest makes a sign of the cross on the forehead of one of the horses. The man hurries to the window, places a small bit on the horse, and again, even though it was another long shot, the horse that the priest had blessed won the race. Yeah, pretty good. The man collected his winnings and anxiously waited to see which horse the priest would bless for the next race. The priest showed, blessed the horse, the man bet on it, and it won. He was elated. Divine intervention was obviously taking place, and this man was in on the secret five wins in a row. Well, with the last rate lit, uh, race approaching, <clears throat> the man makes a stop at the ATM, withdrew all that he could, and awaited the priest's blessing. True to his pattern, the priest stepped out onto the track before the last race and blessed not simply the forehead, but the eyes, the ears, and the hooves of this horse as well. I mean, what a blessing, right? And this was the horse with the greatest odds, the, a total long shot. So the man bets it all. So out of the stall, this horse bolted off to an early. This man's got great excitement. Seemingly, this horse is giving it everything he had. Around the turn, he was way out in the lead. And then could you imagine, though, the shock? As when this horse rounded the corner, it came to a screeching halt, fell to the ground, and suddenly keeled over dead <laughs> right on the track. Well, this man, he was in shock. Like, what, what just happened? So collecting himself, he eventually made his way and found the priest. Of course he did. And demanded, what happened? Father, all day long, you blessed horses and they won. The last race, you blessed a horse with not just one, but all sorts of blessings. And he not only lost, but he died for heaven's sakes. Now, I've been duped, and I've lost everything I, ever, mm -hmm. I have. The priest nodded his head and said, ah, you must be a non-Catholic. <laughs> and he says, well, yeah. Well, what difference does that make? The priest said, because it's obvious, my dear man, that you do not know the difference between a simple blessing and the last, last rites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I thought it was good as a good kind of prelude because, you know, here we are talking about betting, and we've got to think about we're in, quote, the last rites of life. We've got to think about life, death, our situation in, in life. So there's a, a modern scholar named William Lane Craig who wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. He's got a lot of talks online. He's really good. No, he's he's, a, he, he's yeah. marvelous. And uh, he talks about what Pascal says. He addresses what's called the human predicament. That is to say, what is the significance of human life in a world in which, if you're debating an atheist, God is out of the picture, so to speak. So he said, logically, this question ought to be raised prior to and as a prelude to the question of God's existence, which I think that's really a smart move. Like before you try to kind of evangelize, let's kind of just ask some questions, you know, about, you know, life, situation, how you're living. So he talks about pa um, Pascal. So for folks who don't know, he lived in the 1600s. He was a French mathematician and physicist. Uh, he came to a personal faith in Christ. And then he wanted to write a defense of the Christian faith, but he, he, he had died at the age of only 39. And so he left behind hundreds of notes, which they've been called the pensées, meaning uh, written thoughts. So uh, <clears throat> a couple of great books that highlight him, uh, Dr. Peter Kraft, he wrote a book called Christianity for Modern Pagans, which he kind of writes a commentary on Pascal's notes. And he, he's really big. He says when he teaches his college students, people love Pascal and his wager. I mean, we, they don't like him necessarily for the math, you know, <laughs> and, and, and what he did, but they like him for his arguments. And there's this new book out called Just Whatever, 
by a guy named Matt Nelson over at Catholic Answers. And that is a great book. He writes a real good section on Pascal. But So I want to mention, okay, we're in the letter P for Pascal and P for predicament. So for Pascal, the human condition is an enigma. For man, it's at the same time miserable and yet great. He feels within himself both moments of happiness and joy, yet moments of tragedy and despair, especially when thinking about the end of his life, namely death. So Dr. Craig gives this talk called... Um, the absurdity of life without God. Now, if you think about your life without God, without meaning, without purpose, that death is, is not a door, it's a hole. I mean, you know, you just look at the implications of that. I mean, it seems to be fashionable to say, oh, I'm an, I'm an unbeliever, I'm an atheist. But then let's look at the consequences of that thought process, right? Bottom line, you know, who am I, why am I here, where am I going? Here's, here's the answer. You're the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time, chance, and natural forces. You are a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a minute solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You are a purely biological entity, different only in degree but not in kind from a microbe, virus, or amoeba. You have no essence beyond your body, and at death, you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing and are going nowhere. That's a, that's, a, that's a heck of a <laughs> It's nice to wake up and say, wow, that gives me some hope. You know, how's that to brighten your day in the morning, right? But without an ultimate destiny and purpose, then, you know, now, Dr. Craig really speaks about the ultimates. You know, he says there's no ultimate meaning or significance without immortality in God. There's no ultimate value. There's no ultimate purpose, right? And uh, he gives a great summary. This is from Chapter 2 in his book, Reasonable Faith. And this is something, I think, for all of us to ponder, you know, just think about your day-to-day life, how you live, what you're living for, your desires, your passions, your motivations. He said, if each individual passes out of existence when he dies, then what ultimate meaning can be given to his life? Does it really matter whether he ever existed at all? It might be said that his life was important because it influenced others or affected the course of history, but this only shows a relative significance to his life, not mm-hmm. an ultimate significance. Right. His life may be important relative to certain other events, but what is the ultimate significance of any of those events? If all the events are meaningless, then what can be the ultimate meaning of influencing any of them? Yes. Ultimately, it makes no difference. The contributions of the scientist to the advance of human knowledge, the researches of the doctor to alleviate pain and suffering, the efforts of the diplomat to secure peace in the world, the sacrifices of good men everywhere to better the lot of the human race, all these come to nothing. In the end, they don't make one bit of difference, not one bit. Each person's life is therefore without ultimate significance. And because our lives are ultimately meaningless, the activities we fill our lives with are also meaningless. The long hours spent in study at the university, our job, our interests, our friendship, all these are, in the final analysis, utterly meaningless. This is the horror of modern man because he ends in nothing. He is nothing. Right, right, right. So you think about that. It's like I think that should jolt everybody to say, okay, if I don't have an ultimate destiny – to everything that I strive to want to do, whatever hobbies, skills, passions, work ethic, whatever, you know, then it's like, what the heck? You know, you can end in despair. Or you could do it for the glory of God. Right. So that's what he's trying to kind of jolt people in to say, look, look at the big picture here. Because he wants to says, he says, really, the, the biggest thing we're up against is in, indifference. And now he's got a, a fabulous section on indifference here. So he goes... Now, he goes, just imagine someone saying this. He goes, all I know is that I must die, I soon die. 
But what I understand, now again, this is, this is Pascal's words, but what I understand least of all this very death, which I cannot escape, is I know not whence I come, I know not whither I go, I only know that on leaving this world I fall forever into nothingness or into the hands of a wrathful God without knowing to which of these two states I shall be everlasting consigned. Such is my condition, full of weakness and uncertainty. From all this I conclude that I ought to spend every day of my life without seeking to know my fate then. I might perhaps be able to find a solution to my doubts, but I cannot be bothered. And I will not take one step toward its discovery. So he says that there's people who just say, look, I know I'm in this condition, but whatever. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to even find out. So despite the predicament, he says, most people incredibly refuse to seek an answer or to even think about their dilemma. Right. Instead, he says, they lose themselves in what he calls diversions, which are basically distractions, yeah. right? We know it. Toys and noise, right? Diversions. He said, Pascal can only regard such indifference as insane. <laughs> Man's condition ought to impel him to seek to discover whether there is a God and a solution to his predicament. But people occupy their time and their thoughts with trivialities and distractions so as to avoid the despair, boredom, and anxiety that would inevitably result if those diversions were removed. I mean, we're very good, aren't we, at distractions? Think about the gadgets. I can remember years ago, in my, in my own journey, I, the, the big wake-up call for me happened when I thought, okay, you know, I kind of live like, you know, this basically non-thinking existence about the higher things, kind of like, you know, you live like more like an enlightened animal, uh, <laughs> maximize pleasure, avoid pain. But then when I thought, what would I ever teach if I ever had a child? And then I began to think about the purpose of it all. Then I had kind of like almost like a near-death experience. And then I began thinking about the big questions because it's so easy to get sucked into the noise, the toys, the world's distractions. And boy, the world's very good, isn't it? Well, then you don't have to worry about this big question. Right. You, yeah. have to, you don't have to try to, you don't have to try to, most people, I guess, are what, just scared I think to so. try to have to answer it. Yeah. But the answer is kind of right there. Yeah. I mean, uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe, he said, um, the most deadly poison of our time is indifference. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like, so for, for those in the Catholic world who know what Divine Mercy Sunday is, you know, typically it's... It's really the great high feast of the Easter day, so to speak, the eighth day of, of Easter. We're in the Easter season, but that's that's really a culmination of, of, of the great Easter day. And then so as a prelude, people have been—you you got your book right here with you. I happen to bring, bring St. Faustina's diary today. Oh I don't know why. Now I know why. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fabulous because if a person prays, you know, the novena of the chaplain, and there's various prayers— that go with that, you know, it culminates for nine days. We know the word, the word novena comes from nine, and so it's like kind of like it's based upon when the Lord, you know, ascended into heaven. He says, wait, you know, on the 10th day I'm going to come with the Spirit. So there's this prelude up to this great feast, you know. And so on this ninth day there's a series of prayers. You know, you pray for priests and various groups and whatnot. But on the ninth day, Jesus tells Faustina, he said, today bring me the souls who have become lukewarm, and immerse them in the abyss of my mercy. He said, these souls wound my heart most painfully. My soul suffered the most dreadful loathing in the Garden of Olives because of lukewarm souls. Wow. They were the reason I cried out, Father, take this cup away from me if it be your will. Really? So, so now, wow. I mean, if, a... if, if you really ponder that. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you would not normally think that at all, that that would be the thing that would trouble them the most in the, in the garden. Anyways, uh, so hold, <laughs> hold, hold that thought. We're going to continue this in just one second, but I've got to tell you, this is uh, St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. We're here in studio with Sean Mueller, who is the director of of religious education in uh, New Melly at Immaculate Heart there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is sharing some of uh, his educational talents today. So thank you, Sean. <laughs> well, I mean, this is for all of us. It's like, um, I mean, it is so easy to stay on the sidelines, remain lukewarm. I mean, if you remember that great text in Revelation 3.15, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew spew you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, I'm like, so the Lord is really um, not impressed with all those who never want to take a stand, who just say, I'm just going to be on the sidelines, if that works for you. I mean, relativism is soaked in our bones, and you couple that with all the diversions and distractions, and we've got a very non-thinking, non-motivated, non-you know, virtue-focused people. And uh, so, like, um, we we have this Bible group that um, I help facilitate. And during Holy Week, I always read this poem that I first heard from Fulton Sheen, you know, on the radio, you know, years ago. I mean, it was a replay because I'm not that. that <laughs> <laughs> but it was called uh, Indifference. And, and and just see how, how this settles in your soul. So it says, When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to our hometown, we simply passed him by. We never hurt a hair of him. We only let him die. For men had grown more tender and would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained the wintry rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. Wow. I thought, wow, that really is a a moving poem just to try and jolt us. So back to Pascal, he hopes that by causing people to seriously entertain such ideas, he might shake people out of their lethargy to think about their condition and seek a solution. So his analysis of the human predicament leads up to his famous wager argument. So so now, really, just a little bit of the background. To understand his wager, you got to first understand the background, okay? So he lived in a time of great skepticism, kind of like, well, uh, our time, right? <laughs> Especially like. fueled by these new atheists and all the internet and whatnot. So uh, medieval philosophy and theology was being ignored or sneered at by the new intellectuals of the scientific revolution, right? So the classic arguments for God were no longer kind of popularly believed. So what could the Christian apologists say to the skeptical mind of the age? And suppose that such a mind lacked both the gift of faith and the confidence in reason to prove God's existence. Could there be kind of like we said, a third ladder? 
to kind of get out of the pit of unbelief into the light of belief. So Pascal's wager claims to be uh, this third ladder. It's in the form of making a, a calculated bet, a wager, which is basically, I mean, all of life really is at the heart faith. All of us are making wagers. There's so much of life that we don't know, we can't see, we, we, we just trust and, and, and we live. But um, he, he says this. So here, here's an overview of the argument, and we'll try and unpack it a little bit. He says that when the odds that God exists are even, then the prudent man would gamble that God exists. This is a wager that all men must make. The game is in progress, and a bet must be placed. There is no option. You have already joined the game because you're in the game of life. Which will you choose, that God exists or that he does not? So let's say that your reason can't make a conclusive decision one way or the other. Is God, is he not? Well, the choice should be made pragmatically in terms of maximizing one's happiness. If one wages that God exists and he does, one has the potential to gain eternal life and infinite happiness. If he does not exist, one has lost nothing. On the other hand, if one wagers that God does not exist, and he does, then one has the potential to suffer infinite loss. If he does not in fact exist, then one has gained nothing. Hence, the only prudent choice is to believe that God exists. I mean, bottom line, you know, what do you got to lose? Exactly. Now, we're going to be speaking about some people say, oh, you got to lose a lot by the way you live. Well, let's look at that. Well, I should say that, you know, if, if we have time, you know, Pascal says there is a way of getting a look at behind the scenes. You know, like we're not just making a blind throw throw of, of the dice here. He says there's two main things of why that's helped him believe, and that's miracles and prophecy. And that's the second half of his work. But, but for now, he wants to emphasize that even in the absence of such evidence, one still ought to believe in God. Forgiving the human predicament of being cast into eternal existence and into existence and facing either eternal annihilation or eternal wrath the only reasonable course of action is to believe in god for if you win you win all if you lose you lose nothing so i i first heard of this argument um I was listening to a bunch of tapes, and there was this priest telling a story about he was debating an atheist. And uh, I mean, and then, so I, I mean, this is just really, really good. So I hope this makes sense. So again, this is this is kind of in a in a practical term. So the, the priest had said he goes he was on this TV program debating debating an, an atheist. Um, so this woman that he was de- debating, she said, "Prove to me that there's a God, and I'll become a Christian." So what I did to her, he said, is I, I switched on her. I said, you prove to me that there isn't a God and I'll become an atheist. Well, she bit that. She said, I can't prove it. I said, then why do you go around America devoting your whole life to atheism? Why do you spend every waking moment, all your energy going around preaching there's no God? She said, because I believe it. I said, you believe it without proof? She said, but I have a reason. I said, that's right. Then you have faith. <laughs> See, even an atheist has to have faith. Whatever you believe that you cannot prove is faith, but you must have a reason for what you believe. Otherwise, it's stupidity. She said, then, who is to say who's right? You have faith and I have faith. You have faith there is a God. I have faith there isn't. So we're at a stalemate. No, I said. I said, if you are right and there is no God, then there's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. It's just death. If you are right, you will never know it. If you're an atheist, he said, listen to this. Think about that. If you are right, and I believe you're not, you can never, ever, ever know you're right. And she said, what about you? If I'm right. I said, if you're right, I won't know I was wrong. Everybody who believed in God, everybody who believed in life after death, if there is no life after death, if there is no God, we're not going to know we lost. But I said, what about the other way around? If there is a God, and I believe there is, then you will know forever and ever and ever and ever that you lost. You see, I can't lose and you can't win. All an atheist can know is if they're wrong. They can never know if they're right. Now, that ought to kind of just you know, shake you up a little bit 
to kind of think, hmm, that's interesting. You know, again, the goal is to try and push the skeptic over the top a little bit to kind of consider starting off the process. So one of the most powerful part of Pascal's argument is not his refutation of atheism as a foolish wager, but his refutation of agnosticism as impossible. Now, what, what am I talking about here? So an agnostic is a person who says, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm uncommitted. Uh, I'm not sure one way or the other. I'll wait until the weather clears someday. Then maybe I'll make a choice. Pascal replies, but you must wager. There is no choice. You're already in the game. You know, we're moving in this ship of life, moving out along the waters of time, and there comes a point of no return when our fuel runs out when it's too late. He said the wager works because of the fact of death. It kind of forces you to make the call. You know, think about that scene with Indiana Jones, right, in the beginning, right? You must hurry, Indy. He had to make a choice. Death was on the line. Now, you can say, well, I'm leaving my options open, but really that's just saying I have no spine. I haven't really taken the, the, the reality of that i got to face death. So to not making a choice is, is to choose. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think, uh, you know, that uh, movie, if you recall, years ago, was called The Bucket List. That was with Morgan, yes. Morgan Freeman. And yeah. then so if, remember they were on a conversation on the plane and they're talking about the existence of, of God. And then uh, Morgan Freeman says, he goes, so what do you believe? Because he goes, 95% of people believe. And he goes, well, maybe 95% of people are wrong. He goes, well, what do you believe? He goes, I resist <laughs> all beliefs. He says, we live, we die, the wheels of the bus go round and round. And he says, well, what if you're wrong? He goes, I'd love to be wrong. If I'm wrong, I win. And Carter says, I'm not sure it works that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, again, going back to the moral argument that we spoke about last time, we place our bets each day uh, by by how we live. You know, and that's something that we're going to get into here is that this is kind of neat. As I was preparing for this, my wife, uh, she she was uh, – there, there's some uh, app program that you can get where you can watch all the old Touched by an Angel shows, you know. And th- those are great shows. If anybody's ever really watched the, the, the whole series, I think there's like eight seasons of Touched by an Angel. They're really good, especially the latter seasons. But we're, in season six, there was a show called Bar Mitzvah. And sure enough, there was a, a, it was a show with a college professor teaching about Pascal's wager. You know, I thought, hey, I'm giving a talk on this, you know. And it's great because um, I just made a transcription from what, what he was telling the students. He said that he talked about Pascal, and he says, you know, he said, Pascal's wager. He says, Pascal reasoned that we wager our place in the afterlife for what we do in this life right here. And what we do depends on whether or not we believe that God exists. So if you behave morally, as if God exists, and he does, then you win everything. Yeah, and if you behave morally and God doesn't exist, then you lose nothing because you got nothing to lose. Either way, you win. But he says, if you behave immorally, as if God doesn't exist, and you're right, you win nothing. But if you're wrong, if you're wrong, you lose everything. So again, you think about this in terms of practically speaking. I mean, uh, you know, like Dr. Craves said, you know, he knew that this was a low ladder, but it is a start, you know. Um, and so maybe if he, he's going to give us um, examples about, you know, why not place a bet? If, if you're faced with these, you know, infinite odds, you know, and, and one is good, one is bad, why not take the shot? So when we come back, I'll we'll, speak more about that in a second. We'll be coming back. Yes, you do know the routine here, don't you? Uh, this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. We're going to be taking a short break, and we're going to rejoin you shortly. So stay tuned with us as we talk about why complacency is maybe not the best idea.
Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and seven medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand, the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters VRSN. M-V-S-M-Q-L-I-V-B in Latin reference which translates Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally located at the top is the word Pax which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing which your local priest can administer. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio. Check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN-TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN-TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the pro-life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. Well, welcome back. Uh, My name is Ray Gerard. I'm here uh, with Sean Mueller today. Sean is uh, Director of Religious Education, who is... Uh, at, at New Melly, at uh, excuse me, Metalhard in New Melly, and he's uh, kindly uh, looked into the question of uh, whether or not there are reasons for God. And we're talking today about, uh, I guess you could call this maybe, you bet your life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really a, a, a bet. You think about, you know, just gambling, people's desire. I mean, we all like to gamble. I mean, we make risks every day. But you think about just like the bet, man. I mean, what do you, what do you got to lose? So I was just um, before the break, I was thinking about this. Doctor uh, Peter Crape, he kind of said, "Look, just imagine if if you're if you are dying, and someone says, hey, you want to try this miracle drug? Possibly, you got a 50-50 chance. Uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to give it a shot? I mean, what what do you got to face if you don't take it? Or what about let's say, suppose you got a sweepstakes ticket worth a million dollars, and there are only two tickets left. No one's won yet. Wouldn't you say I'm going <laughs> to bet a buck and give it a shot? I mean, what do you, what do you got to lose? Now, people ask, well, is it worth the price? You know, so Pascal says, yeah, you know, um, what do you have to give up in this life? He goes, well, really, he just called them noxious pleasures, you know, illicit pleasures. Like the Christian life, you know, there is a moral life. So it's not just like this intellectual, I'm just going to flip a coin. I mean, there is something that comes with it. But it's like when you compare what you have to give up as compared to what you have to gain, you know, then you're like, (laughs) weigh the odds. I mean, there was this quote by uh, Jim Elliott who died um, trying to evangelize various tribes. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So it's like, you know, if you think about this, if I got to say, I'm going to try and live a Christian life, and again, how, what what minimally do I have to really, really do to then put myself in the prospect of gaining eternal life? When you compare it to, it's just um, really absurd if you don't, um, you know, bet on the 
ultimate affinity. Now, again, that's low-minded, but to the high-minded objector who refuses to believe for the low motive of saving the eternal skin of one's soul, uh, we, we may reply that the wager works quite well if we change the motive. Now, if there is a God of infinite goodness and he justly deserves my allegiance and faith, I risk doing the greatest injustice by not acknowledging him. I mean, you know, think about that. It's like the child that refuses to acknowledge that everything they have was a gift from their parent of existence. That lack of, of gratitude, you know. So anyways, uh, the wager's not going to coerce us to believe, but, you know, at least it should kind of motivate us. Like, you know, like they say, the prayer of the skeptic. God, I don't know whether you exist or not, but if you do, please show me who you are. If the wager stimulates us to at least seek, then it will at least stimulate us to be reasonable. And if the promise of Jesus makes us true, all who seek will find and thus be happy. But, um, you know, one of the things, this kind of goes now into the, the practical level, is that, you know, so he invites people to say, all right, just take this advice. If you can't really get yourself to believe, then uh, he said, concentrate not on convincing yourself by multiplying proofs, but just basically act your way into existence. Like they say, you know, the old term, fake it till you make it. You know, you can't think your way into a new way of, of acting, but you can act your way into a new way of thinking. So it's a practical term. It's behave as if. You know, let's say that you're living a life of debauchery, me, myself, and I lie, cheat, steal, you know, all the things that are contrary to what you might understand to be about Christianity. Well, try and live a moral life of thinking of others first, of not taking but of giving, not lying, cheating, stealing, lusting. You know, go the way of virtue and just say, is this life better than the life that I had, would I want my kids to have this life? Would I want a potential spouse uh, to marry my son or daughter with this way? And then kind of like see how that kind of jolts you in a, in a thinking more. Because I think a lot of the time people say it's an intellectual argument of why they can't believe. But it really can be just a immoral smokescreen that's kind of blinding you. And so like, you know, what do you have to lose? So it's really an invitation to perform the experiment, so to speak. Pascal dares you to kind of place your bets. And then he dares you to kind of place your life in living out that bet by giving up some of these noxious pleasures and to try and live a life to kind of help you to see it. So just to conclude from what he says here, he goes, um, you know, like Dr. Craig says that, like, I think I said this earlier, most of his students at Boston College really like this. And uh, even though many people think this, this is his weakest of all arguments for the existence of, of God, Pascal thought it was the strongest. So after finishing the argument in his pensées, he wrote, this is conclusive. And if men are capable of any truth, this is it. That's the only time Pascal ever wrote a sentence like that, for he was one of the most skeptical philosophers who ever wrote. Unless we take this argument with less seriousness than Pascal meant it to be, he concludes, if my words please you and seem cogent, you must know that they come from a man who went down upon his knees before and after. So he was really praying to God to give somebody an argument for for God, or at least to kind of jolt them. And I think you look at Pascal, the human predicament, I don't know, I, I, I think it's something that really can be good for our times, don't you? I mean, it's it can really kind of shake the conscience up. Well, yeah, I mean, people just, they go, I mean, you don't even buy a car without considering the consequence. Well, if I buy this car, you know, I can get this interest rate, if I, or if I go to this dealer, I get this interest rate, or I go to some other dealer, I get, you weigh the consequences of something as simple as that. And yet, when it comes down to our whole life, we're <laughs> right. not even going to consider the consequences? <laughs> right. 
I mean, that's the scary part about noise and toys is diversions and distractions. You can basically watch reruns of old TV shows for the rest of your life, day in, day out. You can stay in your basement and basically play video games till death do you part. I mean, you know, we've got an abundance of distractions and, and whatever to just make us avoid thinking about it. But I always say, you know, like, I think we were talking before the show about, you know, we got to get back to sanity as well as sanctity. And sanity is right thinking. It's thinking about purpose, plan, goal. Everybody who works on a project thinks with the end goal in mind. But we've, we've kind of, you know, uh, cloistered ourselves from that end goal. You know, that's why I think this whole thing that we had with COVID and the pandemic, I mean, it basically put everybody in fear mode. Because I don't think people are used to thinking about their end. And this kind of confronted them with, oh, this could be the end. I could get sick from a virus and die right now. And, oh, my gosh, so therefore, whatever the doctors say, give me the drugs, give me this. And then you're like, wait a second, you're kind of acting irrationally, don't you think? I mean, I mean, we got to be prudent in this life. But it's like when you saw this fear overtake everybody, that wasn't good. So, Well, you know, you hear people like um, that have – survived a plane crash, for example. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, you know, there's this moment when I thought, hey, this could be the end. <laughs> now, how scary is that if you think, you know, you put yourself on a plane and it's going down and this is the end. You think, oh, wow. And you haven't really thought about that at any other point in your life before then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a little late to be thinking about yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like almost like in a state of... Uh, existential shock and, and you would have wished <laughs> that you would have had more time to be able to you know live yeah. your life in a, in a different way to live different well we all have more time yeah. we're not on that plane that's right yeah yeah you know we're 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 on that sl- it's a slow ship you know we're not we're not just pummeling down the ocean but we're on the slow ship moving and we got we got time and you like to say if today you hear his voice hard not your heart you know again Indy, you must hurry you, we, we we do have to think about this you know now kind of to bring it back to pascal he said look it's not just simply a bet a jump a blind leap you know is that we've got two cards so to speak in, in our hands so he's like uh, he said there there is a way to, that as we seek to wager to, to get a look behind the scenes, kind of like having some of the cards shown in, in a hand. I mean, think about the Texas Hold'em, right? If people who know what that is, I mean, I kind of forget all the terms, but there's the flop, there's a the river, you get two cards. On. Just imagine your first two cards you get are aces, right? You know, it's so like you've got two two of the, of the highest cards, and he'll say two of the highest cards that we have to ascertain how we should place our bet are miracles and prophecy. You know, th- these are two cards. And if, if we don't see all the cards on the table, we, we know that we're on, on the road to having a good hand, <laughs> you know. And uh, But, you know, so in terms of miracles and prophecy, I mean, the early Christian writers spoke that these were like two pillars to kind of, you know, show that Jesus was divine. You know, you think about the miracles that Christ worked in his life as evidence of who he said he was, namely, ultimately, the resurrection from the dead. I mean, as part of this J-U-M-P-E-D, we did a whole talk on, on miracles. So I won't go into that now, but, you know, all these things, basically, Pascal said in terms of, of miracles, he goes, it is not possible to have a reasonable belief against miracles. I mean, it's there. <laughs> Here he is. The Lord was killed and he's raised. You know, the Lord, there was a guy who was blind, he can see. He was lame, he can walk, et cetera, right? <laughs> what are you going to do about that? So, but I, I want to focus on this time with, with prophecy. So again, the Pascal, the predicament, and prophecies. And then there's this section, it's really good. He, he, he again, writes about the human 
predicament. Like, you know, we're blind, we're wretched, we don't know where we're going, nobody else seems to know the answers. Uh, it's Life seems to be absurd. I ask people, what do you think? Nobody can tell me the answer. So he goes, I, I have to examine then, has this God left some sign of himself? I see all these contradictory religions. They all seem to be false. Each one says, believe in me. He goes, I don't believe any of them. But he says, everyone can say this. Everyone can call himself a prophet. But I see that the Christian religion and that religion, prophecies are fulfilled. And that is what every one of these other religions cannot do. And this goes back to what Fulton Sheen had said. Um, you know, he wrote a great book called The Life of Christ. And, he, you know, he has so many works. But he the, he always starts out, he says, if God were enter were to enter the world stage of history, you would expect that he would be pre-announced. And you think about, you know, no other world religion founder was pre-announced. This is an argument from prophecy. You know, it's, it's, it's fabulous when you think about like the um, – when we were reading through the passion, the narrative there, and there was a scene where, you know, Peter's about to, you know, he, he strikes and cuts the ear off of Malchus. And then, you know, the Lord says, stop. And he says, you know, basically, I, I have come that these scriptures will be fulfilled. You think about we say uh, every week in, in the creed, you know, that uh, he came in accordance with the scriptures. He has spoken to the prophets. The Lord at this scene in the Passion says that, you know, he could send 12 legions of angels to kind of help him out, but he goes, then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? So the Lord comes to fulfill prophecies that all foretold. So we're going to be speaking about some of those. Like the first one, Genesis 3.15, right? After the fall of man, there's a promise that somebody would come and would crush the head of the serpent, you know, which that's kind of like the opening scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that Christ has come to destroy the works of, of the devil. There's a great line in the catechism that says, the coming of God's Son to earth is, a, is an event of such immensity that God willed to prepare for it over centuries, he makes everything converge on Christ, all the rituals, sacrifices, figures, symbols of the first covenant. So I got this picture of, of the, it's called the bow tie analogy of salvation history, where everything in the in the back was foretold. Think about a, a bow tie. It converges on Christ, and he's the centerpiece of the bow tie, and from there it, it goes forth again. So, But I really love it because when you stand back and look at all these prophecies, and I'll just mention some, some resources here, um, you know, this is this is great. So th this is from Fulton Sheen. Again, he's got the book Life of Christ, but he's got this catechism series. Like was it like a twenty-five or fifty-part series? Uh, I I love Fulton Sheen. I named my firstborn son Fulton Sheen. <laughs> not, not Fulton. Fulton. <laughs> Fulton, Fulton, Fulton John. <laughs> Anyways, I always recommend his works. But he goes, he says this, and this is really good. He goes, he goes. Certainly, there are many who claim to be messengers from God. If anyone is coming from God with a revelation, well, reason should impose certain tests. Sheen mentions three. First, whoever comes should be pre-announced. Second, he should work miracles, showing that he is, in fact, a messenger of God. And third, nothing he teaches should be contrary to reason, though it may be above it. He said those standards are a measuring rod. If God's going to send someone to the search, certainly the least he can do is to let us know. This requirement will do away with the idea of any individual suddenly appearing upon the stage of history and saying, I am God, or I have a message from God. He who comes ought to be able to do marvels, science to authenticate his message. But line up all the claimants that come from God or say it, and let's say, okay, we're going we're gonna to judge you. We're going to ask you a few questions. Here's one. Were you ever pre-announced? Any of you? Answer, Buddha. Did anyone ever know you were coming to this earth? Confucius. 
Was the place of your birth prophesied? Socrates, did anyone foretell you would die of hemlock juice? Mohammed, was there ever an ancient tradition that you would be born among a certain people? Was there ever a description as to how you would die? Did any one of your mothers know you were coming? Is there a single one of you who can point to an historical record in which it was foretold where you would live, where and how you would die, what your character would be, the manner of your teaching, the kind of enemies you would provoke and evoke by the dignity of teaching? Up to this moment, right, we haven't regarded Christ as different from any other messenger from God, but now here he is. He steps in the ranks. What is your name? My name is Jesus Christ. Were you ever pre-announced? Are there any historical records long before your coming describing the details of your existence? Are there documents attesting to the work you would do and the purpose of your coming? He is the only one who can answer, yes. We say to the other, step back. You may be interesting, but you do not satisfy my first test. You were not pre-announced, and that's the least that God can do. You, we have only your word. But we are interested in the person of Christ. He was the one who was pre-announced. And, like, and so then Fulton Sheen, he said, just to get an extraordinary uh, sense of, of the nature of the, of the prophecies of Christ, he says, just take one from there was a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that, that David would always have a successor. That meant that for about a 1,000 years, there had to be a male descendant in every single descendant from David in order to have a fulfillment of a prophecy. Think about how remarkable that is. I mean, he says like Abraham Lincoln, for example, has no living male descendant. So there's books out there. I got two on the table here, or just, just one about the prophecy. Salvation is from the Jews. There's one that's by Roy Shoman. There's one called The Crucified Rabbi by Taylor, Taylor Marshall. There's Scott Hanna has works called Genesis to Jesus and various other sources like that. So uh, this is uh, St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, here in studio today with Sean Mueller. And he is telling us all about uh, reasons for God, why it doesn't make any sense to ignore the question. How silly is that? Just Let's just not... Let's just not think about it, you know. I mean, why why would we have, why would we want to figure out whether or not our lives even have <laughs> any meaning? So those you were just mentioning two books, Sean, and those obviously, I'm, I'm interested in getting them myself. Those are obviously two good ones. Yeah. So uh, the one that was on Pascal was Peter Crapes. That's Christianity for Modern Pagans. That was kind of part one of the talk. Part two, Salvation is from the Jews, where he uh, Roy Shoman. Um, speaks about all these prophecies that foretold Christ. There's one by uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall called The Crucified Rabbi. Scott Hahn's work, Our Father's Plan, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis to Jesus, all his stuff is good. Um, but, you know, you think about this, we, we really enact what we believe about the prophecies every week in the liturgy. We got a first reading from the Old Testament, and we kind of see its fulfillment in the New, at, at least during ordinary time, you know, is that we've, we've got how, like, something was foretold and then in Christ, we see its fulfillment. So we should get to the point as believers, we're like, you should be able to almost hear the first reading and think, okay, I know how that's, I know what the gospel is going to be. And then you should be able to hear the gospel and say, I know what the first reading is going to be. So there are all kinds of resources that highlight uh, these prophecies. Now, I've got a, a handout here that lists. Uh, this is radio, remember, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't hold it up. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it lists. Uh, 350 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by by Christ, you know, which is an amazing thing. You know, just an example of the prophecies regarding his his birth. Right, um, he would be the offspring of a, of a woman. This is Genesis 3:15. He would come to crush the serpent's head. 
All nations shall be blessed through him, through Abraham, Genesis 18. He would be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. Be born in the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5. Be born a king in the line of David, Isaiah 9. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:13. Kings will come and bring uh, gifts before him, Psalm 72. Born in the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? All these are in Genesis and so forth. So, you know, we could go bit by bit through oh, each of these. Yeah, I mean, the ones that come to mind, I mean, it's like he will, we will hold him in no repute. Yeah. You know? Yeah, especially when you got, you have all, all his, the birth, but then uh, of, of, of his passion. You know, you think about, especially if you read, anybody who reads Matthew's Gospel, you see that Matthew said this is written so that, and, and, and it evokes this Old Testament prophecy, but especially in the passion scenes. I mean, um, I, I got another handout here where, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just want to focus on on the two two biggies, then we'll see what time we have left. One is, is Psalm 22. So you know how that psalm starts out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, some people think like when they when they read that word of Christ in the Gospels, they think, oh, no, is Jesus um, losing his faith, you know, on the cross and the suffering? It's like, no, he's evoking Psalm 22, which begins that way, which if you read the whole psalm, this thing was written around a thousand years before Christ. And, and here comes our Lord at the exact window of time when the Romans we're using crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. I mean, at the time David wrote this, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. I mean, it was invented by the Persians, like, you know, in the year, what, five or 600, 700? And then the Romans came in and, and started to use it. But here David is describing it. And, you know, you think about that psalm. So, again, he starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, etc." He says, I, my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Uh, dogs are round about me. They divide my garments. I can count on my bones. So this is interesting is that um, this video, it's called The Prophecies of the Passion. In, in the video, this one person, he commented that he had a friend who wrote out this full text, both of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. So those are the great, you know, suffering servant psalms in, in Isaiah. He says... Um, he wrote out the full text with, with, with the verses that followed it, showed it to all his coworkers, but he didn't write down that it was from, let's say, Psalm 22 or Isaiah. Everyone he showed it to asked him, or he asked, who is this and where does it come from? Everyone that looked at it said Jesus, and that it's from the New Testament. <laughs> and he said, it was written. <laughs> from the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. He said, this was written by Isaiah 800 years before Christ. So again, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, there's a, there's a ton. Now, only God can predict the future and bring it to pass. Fulfilled prophecy is proof of God. It also proves that God has spoke through the writings of his prophets as recorded in the Bible for our benefit today. So you say, you know, um, God has a plan. People are all in a, all, are all in a conspiracy theory. But you're like, no, this is a, an orchestrated plan theory is that God would come to fulfill all these prophecies. So like going back to, to, to Pascal, he says that the prophecies are really going to be the strongest proof of, of Jesus Christ. It is for them also that God has made most provision. For the event which has fulfilled them is a miracle existing since the birth of the church to the end. He said, God's raised up prophets during 1,600 years and during 400 years afterwards. He has scattered all these prophecies among all the Jews who carry them into all parts of the world. 
Such was the preparation for the birth of Jesus Christ, and as his gospel was to be believed by the whole world. It was not only necessary that there should be prophecies to make it believe, but that these prophecies should exist throughout the whole world in order to make it embraced by the whole world. So everybody should be able to look at these and I say, oh, there's a pattern. There's a plan. There's something going on here. This cannot be by human invention alone. You get, you look and you say, it had to be God. Oh, yeah. it just happened. It was, <laughs> you know? it was just a coincidence over a thousand years. Yeah, and it, it's one thing it was just one guy who was a, a prophet saying these things, but this is like they're scattered out over century after century after century. And I think that's just, uh, you know, a very powerful witness kind of for, for our, our, our time. So, like, there's a guy just to recommend one other source. His name is Lee Strobel. And uh, he says that we have to look at the life of the Lord through the lens of these prophecies. This is more than just a story about someone who comes and dies and claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah. It is a fulfillment of these prophecies against all mathematical odds in a miraculous way that validates the claim of Jesus Christ to be who he claimed to be. God, in a sense, created a fingerprint. He provides predictions. Whoever fulfilled these predictions, you will know he is the Messiah. Now, if you know anything about Lee Strobel, he, he wrote all these books called like The Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for a Creator. He was um, a journalist working for the Chicago Times, and he, he talks about um, covering a particular case where the murderer went through the purse of the victim and he left one thumbprint on the cellophane wrapper of a pack of cigarettes and it was that thumbprint which led to his conviction for murder. Strobel says that in an analogous way, could it be that these ancient prophecies are like that thumbprint on the cellophane, but there's not just one, there is hundreds. And do they all create a thumbprint that only Jesus Christ in all of history manages to match. And we're like, absolutely. So, I mean, I don't know if there is a certain prophecy that um, strikes you or that, you know, really uh, makes you really ponder things, but it's like, I think the ones from his birth and the ones from his passion, it's like, you just can't oh, it's look the at multitude. that. It's, it's, it's the multitude. Yeah, so I would invite everybody to look at some of these resources, books. It's all aligned. Just type in prophecies of, of of Jesus Christ, the one that I mentioned about the uh, the 350 uh, one, I, the guy is named Peter Peter Stoner, I, I, I think is his name, and he, he had a whole bunch of university students put together all this stuff, and so you can't say it just happened. Sure. It had to be God. <laughs> it had to be God. Sean, thank you for being here. It has been great. It's been illuminating as always. Listening to St. Joseph Radio presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S A I N T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636 447 6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.